Hey everyone, welcome to B2B Made Simple. I'm Sam Moss, the CEO and co-founder of One Click Agency. On this show, I interview marketing experts from fast-growing B2B SaaS companies. We feature podcast episodes I'm a guest on, and sometimes we throw in a consulting call I've done with another company. Our goal with this show is to equip you and give you the tools you need to be the best marketer you can be. Hey everybody, welcome to B2B Made Simple, a marketing podcast for B2B marketers that want to get better at marketing and hone in their skills and listen to the pros that are already doing an awesome job. And one of those pros I have here with me today, his name is Aaron Jan Mohammed. He is the VP of Marketing at Consensus. Aaron, it's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And thanks for calling me a pro. <laughs> Stroking my ego before we begin. I like, I like it. Well, that, I always uh, do some pretty heavy vetting on who I think would be a great addition to come talk to uh, talk to our listeners. And uh, you you were definitely someone that stuck out to me. So I'm excited about this conversation for sure. Yeah, me too. Um, today, we're going to dive into the fundamentals of a demand engine. But before before we do that, uh, I do have a, an opening question for you. Um, if you had to choose between Coke and Pepsi from here on out, which one would you choose? Uh, Dr. Pepper or Coke. There you, <laughs> there you go. Coke products. There you go. I like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. That's I'm right. in the same camp. I'm a Dr. Pepper guy. So uh, I would be saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, cool. So the fundamentals of a demand engine, we have a number of points that we'll cover here, but yeah. um, one of which our opening topic is, you know, buyer enable enablement. And I think we're going to spend most of our time here um, because the times have changed. They really have. Um, so one thing that we see more often than not is that buyers are, are almost selling to themselves. They're closing the deals, not necessarily the sales reps, um, because they have all of the research and all of the information at their fingertips. So how do companies need to adapt to that, especially marketers? Yeah, I, it, there's definitely a mindset a mindset shift that needs to take place. You know, I was in field sales for 10 plus years and then I transitioned to marketing. So I've, I've straddled these two sides of the revenue funnel. And the one thing that I've, I've come to, to learn is that we always think we have a lot more control and power than we do. Um, and it is especially true for, for sellers, but it, it, it influences the way that marketers think, I believe. So there's, there's a ton of research around who's actually doing the selling out there. Uh, I think Gartner has done probably most of it, but they've shown that, you know, when you look at a B2B buyer, how much time do they actually spend with a vendor? And um, it's, it's like 17% of the total buying process is in some contact with some vendor. So not even just one vendor, that's all vendors, which means as, as a seller, you've got maybe 5%, 3% of their attention while they're going through this process of researching, talking to people, making decisions. And I used to think, you know, if I landed a meeting with a customer and then a follow-up meeting, and I, I added a couple of stakeholders to that second meeting, and then there was another meeting after that, you're looking at three, four, five weeks maybe with an hour in each session. And suddenly I feel like I've got all the power in the world. And it, it's just, it's not the case. It's like, what's happening between your meetings with those buyers? They're interacting with leaders who have competing agendas. They're making the case. They're talking to other stakeholders. They're trying to convince teams that they need to move from the status quo. I mean, they're selling between the meetings. So if you think about it, there's no such thing really as a complex sale. It's just complex purchasing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sellers, marketers, we don't we don't close deals. The buyers do. And so uh, when you talk to marketers and sellers about the training and the tech that exists, you know, rightly so, all of it is geared towards, you know, getting people there first and for sellers, controlling that conversation, having good discovery calls, and then leading a process to close. Um, None of it is about buyer coaching. None of it is about orienting your thinking or your strategies to what buyers are going through. So I loved last year, there was so much commentary, uh, you know, on LinkedIn about, you know, empathy for customers and really understanding what the customers are going through. This is where I think it really affects marketers is we say those words, but when you really think about what a buyer has to go through to close a deal, um, you know, they, they don't, they don't purchase that often. They're not very good at it. That's what we've discovered is that even for customers of the likes of Salesforce and SAP and Oracle, like their customers aren't that mature at buying. And so the kinds of content that we produce in marketing, the kinds of calls and, and, and tools that we offer as sellers, they need to really be oriented at making the process of buying easier. So that's why this, this notion of buyer enablement, I think is so critical. And I'm trying to apply it more, more directly as a marketer now, because, you know, I look at some of the content that we create. Um, I would argue that consensus does break a number of rules when it comes to traditional marketing, but we offer very tactical thought leadership, um, industry reports and research, and a lot of demos. And, you know, we're, we're doubling our business just on that kind of level of detail. And it, it's, it's a proof point to me that, you know, customers want to see the product, they want to get validation, they want confidence to move forward with the decisions that, are, that they're making. That's not, not just a sales game, that's a marketing game too. And so a lot of the content that we're creating has to be kind of geared towards that. A lot of the things that we do um, from, uh, from the marketing side, including events, have to be really oriented at, at empowering them and making, making the process of promoting you easier within their accounts. That's, that's the essence as I see it. Mm-hmm. Um want to back it up a step. You, you mentioned the buying process needs to be simple and easy uh, to kind of help them along in the journey. What are some ways that you've seen that um, done well, per se? Yeah, it's a good question. And maybe I'll clarify that. Um, you know, I saw this chart not too long ago of uh, the buying process, how it's asynchronous, and it's just a messy board of things that happen. <laughs> the buyer mm-hmm. goes through all of this stuff. They download all of these things. They talk to all of these people it's uncoordinated. It's just like a messy board of things that buyers go through. I don't know that you can necessarily strip all that out or simplify that, but you can maybe guide them through that. And that's where I think you can have success. You know, you're, I don't think we're going to solve the, the problem of complexity because it's just, you know, when I'm buying a tool, I'm, I'm, I'm Googling stuff. I'm talking to, you know, fellow marketing leaders. I'm looking at G2. I'm downloading eBooks, attending webinars, you know, I don't know that I change that motion because I get a lot of richness from that, mm-hmm. from that exercise. So uh, for me, it's not so much about simplifying, but I, I guess making it easier to navigate that complex sea of things and possibilities that you could spend your time on. And so, um, yeah, I think when you have, you know, a, a mix of targeted webinars and, and, and guides that, that, uh, that are practical and help you do your jobs better and you're, you're, enmeshed in this dark funnel world and providing insights that actually help people do their jobs better. I think that's when you start to see this groundswell of, of momentum from your buyers and how they start to pick up on the things that you want them to pick up on in a non-confrontational way, I guess you could say. Um, that's usually where I see it best when there's kind of a coordinated approach 
from the top of your funnel all the way to the bottom in the stories that you're telling, the messaging that you're delivering, and the access that you're providing to people to get what they need easy and on demand. When that happens, it seems like the buying process becomes at least manageable, much more manageable, and they are much more confident moving through that process. Mm-hmm. You know, you made a comment to me that selling is really about buyer coaching. What do yeah. you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, going back to this this idea of buyer enablement, it's it's like so. I had a customer not too long ago. I hinted at this, but let me let me go into it a little bit more depth. Um, one of our major customers, uh, global vice president of of pre sales, uh, was telling me that you know if you look at all the money that we spend on on tools and training and certification and coaching and events, all this stuff that we give to our sales and marketing folks, it's all it does is is helps to reinforce our process, our timeline, our milestones. And he said he's really trying to switch the way that they think about their buyers, because if you're a buyer coach, it's not just about you forcing your calendar and your process on the buyer, but rather in some ways accommodating their process. Like I said, their process is messy, it's uncoordinated, and it's different for every every buyer. And so there's this feeling from from buyers, at least when I do customer interviews, whenever I join a a new company, I, I interview a lot of customers just to get a feel for their experience. And they Without fail, they say it's you know it's just inconsistent from from marketing to sales, from sales to customer success, or any interaction with pre-sales that they. Have. I mean, the experience is always inconsistent, um, which is why so many I think prefer digital channels and self-navigation because they can do it at their own pace and kind of tailor it to what what they prefer to the topics that are most important to them, and uh, that that seems to be the right place to be, to to start to play in more completely. And so if you can. If you can coach them in ways that they're going to be more likely to be engaged, I think you're going to have more success. Um, so digital demos is an area, you know, obviously that's what consensus is really passionate about, but offering a customer, um, not forcing them into a live demo situation, but offering them a digital experience that they can, that's personalized to them that they can kind of manage on their own. It works because that's how they're consuming all their other content. And so we're not stripping them out of their process. We're not necessarily forcing our process onto them or our calendar to them. You know, I, I had another customer tell us, you got to stop holding customers hostage to your calendar. There are other ways for them to get at the information that they want. And it's probably more beneficial for them if you accommodate that. And I'm not saying you, you have to completely do away with, with, with sellers and you have to completely do away with traditional marketing, but there seems to be a balance that we need to strike that is a little bit more understanding of, uh, of that kind of asynchronous process of buying and, uh, maybe filling in the gaps that exist there so that they feel like there's confidence to move forward. And there's some guiding principles rather than just this messy sea that they always have to navigate in. Mm-hmm. In your words, why does marketing actually need to become more aligned with how buyers buy? Why is that so important to you and really any other company that you're, you've been involved with or will be involved with? I think the biggest thing is just that there's, there's a, <laughs> this is the right word, a preponderance of content out there that is irrelevant and unhelpful. Mm -hmm. You know, the market at one turn over-rotated to this idea of personalization, which I do think is important, but personalization without relevancy doesn't really, I mean, you can make something about me and about things I care about, but if it's not relevant to the problems I'm trying to solve, of what use is it? So I think that that notion of, you know, relevancy at scale um, really hits marketing teams, 
uh, what they're producing, what they're writing on their websites, the content that they're doing, the webinars that they're they're pushing. Um, you know, a lot of that today is, I think, fluff and not helpful. When customers want things like technical product overviews or or guides on how to spin up a a, a team, you know, they're in growth mode and they don't know exactly how to put the pieces of their organization together. You know, it's that kind of stuff that seems to generate a lot of interest and trust with people. And so, you know, if, if you're not oriented to your buyer's uh, needs and processes and the way that they think about the world, and you're just trying to push fluff for lack of a better word, even mm-hmm. personalized fluff is still fluff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, that that's that notion of relevancy to what they're at and the stage that they're at is, is really the key thing that marketers need to spend more time at. I'd be curious to see if you're aligned on this with me. Um, when it comes to relevant, relevant content, do you believe that content needs to correlate with the product that you offer or the customer or the buyer's life as a whole? Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't think it always needs to correlate to the product. This goes back to what stage in the buying process are they? I mean, at some point they want to go deep into the product and you have to accommodate Mm -hmm. that. But I'll tell you, one of our highest performing assets in driving closed one opportunities is a study that we do every year, the work and comp report for the pre-sales industry. Um, I mean, there are elements in that that definitely tie to our product, but it's it's just about the industry and and Mm -hmm. what keeps people up at night. Uh, the challenges that, that they have to face. And we were able to build really good content on the heels of that that is tied more directly to our product. Uh, but this gets into that notion of, of, I guess, trust and exposure to the brand. You know, when people think about our space now, they think about us because we're providing a point of view on what is the state of this industry. I found the same thing to be the case at my last company where we would do this, you know, the state of sales development each year. And it wasn't product centric, but it certainly helped people do their jobs better. So at the point where they did, did need to solve the problem with the technology purchase, who did they think of? Mm-hmm. They thought of us. Um, and we did, you know, we do a very good job of tying that broad level thought leadership relevant to our ICP, um, tying that to, to our product. Like there's, you know, blogs and articles and white papers and webinars and all sorts of things that you can do that, that tie from those sort of high level assets to a more tactical asset that's speaking about your product. I think if you do that effectively, that's probably the best motion, but you definitely need to be out there. I mean, this is go, goes to the notion of, you know, brand awareness, what really drives brand. And that's, uh, that's being the first, you know, it's that perception creation. It's being, being the people that, that your audience thinks about when they do have a problem they need to solve because you've mm-hmm. been communicating to them about how to make their lives uh, work in a more seamless way. And if you do that frequently enough, often enough to a wide enough audience, you're one of the, you know, one of the ones that bubble up to the top when they actually think of a tactical solution they need to purchase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think we're definitely aligned on that. Um, and I think a lot of companies miss the mark when it comes to content and they actually handcuff themselves because, and I've kind of fallen into this trap as well, where I feel like the content that we put out needs to correlate with the service that we offer. Not necessarily like you framed it, an industry update or um, some industry thought leadership, very broad. And it might not touch on what you do as a company at all, Yeah, but at least it's out there. And now they're going to remember you for, oh, you know what? I've actually been really enjoying this content from Aaron and the team at Consensus. Has nothing to do with your product, but they're going to remember you in the back of their mind. And I, I think a lot of companies sleep on that, quite frankly. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I'm a, a victim of this, <laughs> uh, 
for lack of a better term, but um, we're, we're customers of metadata. And I, I didn't know about their product initially. Well, I had had colleagues that used them before, but that wasn't my introduction to them. They, I think Jason, um, Jason had done, who's their vice president of marketing, had done a, a webinar on, on best practices for LinkedIn conversation ads. Well, that's relevant to my space. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, you can manage that kind of spend through their tool. But um, I mean, it was just like the best practices of, of that theme that was relevant to something that I was trying to solve. And then once I was introduced to that, I thought, well, it'd be great if I had a tool that could help me manage it. Oh, wait, they, they have a, so there was a connection there, but it wasn't yeah. pitched as that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they were just addressing something that's relevant to, to the work that I do and solves a pretty clear pain point or at least a confusion point, I, you know it's sort of that gray area where I didn't have a ton of experience. So I needed to brush up on my skills and they were offering, you know, some content that was, that was providing that. And we became customers. And I I see that Mm -hmm. happening all the time, even with our customers. Mm -hmm. So how does all of this feed into the concept of the dark funnel? And even if you want to give a quick rundown on what the dark funnel is, um, if people don't know, and then how all this actually ties into it, because it is really interesting. Yeah, and I'm not going to try to steal Chris Walker's thunder because he's kind of the uh, the ambassador of dark funnel marketing. But um, I mean, our customers don't exist in all the spaces that we track, and that's really that's really what it comes down to to me. So doing things like podcasts, I think, is really relevant. I mean, um, analysts have caught on to this. I think it was Forrester, or maybe it was Gartner, who said you know 60 to 70 percent of buyers do listen to podcasts relevant to decisions that they're about to make. I certainly do that. You know, if I'm, you know, I, I want to be better at my job and podcasts are a great forum to, to get that information. You know, it's, it's not the same kind of channel where I can, you know, measure cost per lead and do the same kind of conversion rate analysis that I would through other channels. And so you might think, well, this is a nice to have, but not a, a must have, but it's like, well, I don't know. I think our customers are actually self-selecting those channels to educate themselves. And so if we're not there, um, somebody's going to be speaking Someone. to them. Yeah, it's not <laughs> yeah. us right now. So we've got to fix that problem. And so I think that's really what it comes down to is going back to the other point about buyer enablement. I mean, um, I, I don't think you always need to just go where your buyers are at and do what they want you to do. There is some kind of, there's a dance there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 at the same, in the same breath, I'll, you know, I, I mentioned that buyers are not good at buying. And so you do have to coach. This is where the, the, the notion of buy, buyer coaching comes into play. You, you have to guide them. But, um, you know, at, at that top of the funnel and even throughout, you got to meet them where they're at. Uh, I mean, it's mm-hmm. as simple as that. You can't control their behavior in channels that you're not, you're not tracking. So you might as well exist in those channels so that you can have an influence on the way that they think. By the time they actually engage with one of your sales reps, Right or wrong, they've made up their mind on a lot of different things. I, I, I've heard people say, "Yo, they've made, they've already established sixty to seventy percent of their buying criteria." I don't know how they measure that kind of stuff, but let's assume for a moment, <laughs> knows, for the right? moment that it's true. Yeah, let's assume for the moment that it's true. Um, either way, that window of influence that marketers and sellers have to change the way that buyers think or to redirect them to the way that they want them to think mm-hmm. is so much narrower than it used to be. And so I, I do view dark funnel marketing as one of those key avenues that you, you need to invest in in order to have greater influence over the way that they're thinking about their problems and their role. So we have such a tiny, tiny window of influence open to us during this time. How do we capitalize on that opportunity? 
I think some of the things like, like what you're doing, I mean, we mentioned podcasts a few times, but just, just mm-hmm. think about what this, what this gives the marketplace, not so much your interview with me, but I listened to your interview with, with Chris Walker and with, uh, you know, several others in the past couple of weeks. And I mean, that's, that's helping me do my job better. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm now thinking of Sam when I think of solutions for websites and, and things like that, because I kind of see how you're connected to this space and you're offering uh, things that make my life a little bit easier. And so I, I, I think you kind of have to gauge where your audience is at and, and, and make the efforts that are required to, uh, to help influence their thinking in those, in those areas. So in our space, you know, we're speaking to pre-sales people, which it's an odd bunch, you know, no one sells technology to pre-sales people. We're one of the, one of the first actually creating this category of digital pre-sales technology. And so we're finding it's really fascinating. All these little, you know, regional communities for pre-sellers pop up that we don't necessarily have control over the audience, but as we get engaged with them, we're finding that we're generating a lot of pipeline just by having some exposure to those communities. Now you might say that's Mm -hmm. okay. You can get that in almost any industry, but it's, it's a new thing for the pre-sale space. You know, no one has ever really done this. Um, There's only two or three podcasts for pre-sellers right now. And so that's something that I'm going to be launching here pretty soon is, you know, speaking to this community about burning pre-sales questions that that keep people up at night. Um, uh, and I'm sure there's lots of other avenues that we could explore, but, you know, again, it goes back to that, that, that notion of understanding that, that messy sea of, of interactions that your buyers have to navigate through, uh, pinpoint the areas where you can at least have a presence and start having a presence there. And I, I, I almost view it as like, you know, SEO results, you don't generally see until six to 12 months out. I don't know mm-hmm. that you're going to see an immediate boost in, in pipeline because you've started a podcast, but certainly you won't, I'll tell you right now, <laughs> yeah. but you probably, you can probably attest that doing it over time um, allows you to essentially build your own media engine. I, I mean, mm-hmm. it'd be great if you get to the point where you don't have to spend a bunch of money to do marketing because you've got your social presence, you've got your organic presence, you've got your podcast presence, you you're, you're engaged in different communities and, and all of them are, if you know, if not most of them are very hard to track from a traditional metric standpoint, but all mm-hmm. of them are starting to create sort of this brand awareness, um, that sort of wave that drives people to your website, to your brand, to your people, to your message that you honestly can't, you can't operate without anymore. I mean, I, I still hear CEOs say things like, Hey, we need to do a press release because that's PR and that's not PR. I mean, you should, you should be doing your own PR. You're like, Oh, own your story and get out there and like communicate with the, with the market in ways that are unique, fun, exciting, value adding, but don't rely on these traditional channels only, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the fundamentals of a demand engine, we, we start with buyer enablement. The next thing that we have on the list is channel diversity. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what that means, because I think there's a lot of different um, nuances you know, how many platforms are we on? Is it all paid? Is it organic? What yeah. are our priorities? Uh, where do you, how do you come at that? Yeah. So for the longest time, consensus had been um, getting so much traction with like LinkedIn paid ads that we didn't really have an organic motion in place. You know, we weren't doing blogs and articles and things to really optimize um, our content. Um, we weren't really investing in any retargeting or doing anything else. And I'm, I'm not saying that those are optimal channels, but I, I'm just finding that, okay, we've had success with that. And I've seen this play out at several companies where what got us to this point is not necessarily going to get us to the next era or the next phase in our company's growth. 
And so if we've had success with one thing to, to assume that it's going to last forever, especially in the paid universe, I think is a, a foolish dream. It's not going to happen. Um, you're going to start to see those channels wear out, um, especially mm-hmm. if you're running the same ads all the time. You, you know, so there has to be message diversity on some, on some level, as long as it's tied back to a core strategic narrative. But then, you know, what's interesting is that my last company, our um, highest performing channel was Facebook, retargeting Facebook ads. Uh, we were getting more quality opportunities there than, than anything else. And I thought of it because I, I didn't anticipate that, but I thought about that. And, you know, it's, I, I, I observed my own behavior. Um, I, I do a lot of my uh, evaluations of vendors when I'm sitting in front of the TV, you know, mm-hmm. or I'm, I'm at dinner or at lunch, you know, if my kids are off doing stuff, I'll open up my phone. I'll see an ad from Gong because I always see, see ads from Gong. Um, I'll click on it because, you know, it's kind of tailored to me. If, 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 it, you know, if there's a relevant message, I'll kind of go into it, even though I know who they are, but it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not always in front of my desktop, just looking at LinkedIn, doing the one thing all day, every day. So you've got to catch me at different points in, in my day in my life cycle and my buying cycle. I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just that notion of you can't be a one trick pony, you definitely have to build up your own media engine so that you don't have to rely on paid channels. In the meantime, don't think that you can throw everything into one channel um, and, and have success, you know, branching off into things like LinkedIn conversation ads and doing retargeting and, you know, uh, going into different avenues to try to um, um, appeal to your audience to assume that they're all behaving in the exact same way. And if you've had success in one place, that's the only place you're going to have success, I think, is, is, is the big mistake you need to fix. Mm-hmm. I think from an organic standpoint, a good way to execute is start on a platform, get your processes in order and execute it well. And then as things start to pick up, keep your feelers out for where can we execute this next? Because a lot of companies approach it, at least in the organic realm. I understand there's like differences in paid advertising. Yeah. But if you are on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and YouTube all at the same time, it's going to suffer. But I think Chris Walker is the prime example of doing something really well and then almost stacking growth toward the next thing and always looking toward how can we execute this well. And he actually brought up a really good point in the talk that I had with him. He was like, look, it's we're not going to move on to the next thing until we execute this well, because a lot of people think that the next best thing will solve their issue when they actually suck at LinkedIn organic, and then they're going to go suck on uh, TikTok, and it's not going to work. So you actually have yeah. to focus on one until you get the fundamentals right, execute well, and then you can start stacking the growth. I, I Yeah, I agree. With, I do think that's the right approach. In terms of growing your, your channel diversification strategy, um, I, yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. You're, you're right. And, and maybe so I'll clarify my comment. You can't do everything you can do more than one thing if you're doing it right. And I yeah. think that's where I found our company is we were doing LinkedIn paid ads. Great. Okay. So let's, let's, let's build on that now. Let's do, let's do something else and find our audience in different places. And definitely let's get our organic machine going because, you know, this is the other thing about building organic content. One of the things we've done well is we've got, you know, tons of webinars and, a few really good guides and reports. And we do this demo fest event each year, which draws a few thousand people. Um, and then, so we're sitting on this 
this mountain of great content that's already been been proven to to add value and to appeal to our audience, what more can we do with what exists? I think I think I've been intimidated in the past when I've tried to tackle organic content creation, net new organic content creation. I think I'm going to lay out this whole strategy, which you, know, you should have a strategy, but then I've got to go build all this stuff net new and I don't have anything to work. Like there's usually a fairly good repository of things that work. If you're a business that's in business and growing on some level, like take what works, build off what exists. And uh, it's actually a lot easier than trying to do everything net new. And that's, uh, that's something that I've learned. Mm -hmm. You know, you brought up an interesting point about um, how you realized you were doing really good. It was uh, LinkedIn paid, right? Was what you were saying. Yeah. yeah. And you realized that and decided to go execute and stack the growth on something else. But a lot of companies would have been like, oh, this is awesome. We found the next best thing. We're going to sit back and just put on cruise control. And then you'd have these indicators that aren't showing up and it's too late by the time it stops working. It's like, yeah. for example, if you have uh, your, your p right? but you stop your demo requests go down, but you're not tracking your demo requests. Yeah. You're not going to notice that on a PL until the next quarter or even the following quarter. And then you're like, Oh crap. And it's too late to go fix the source. Yeah. So it's just like on LinkedIn, if you, if you hadn't stacked the growth and started getting something else going ahead of the game, then when LinkedIn stops working, then you guys would have shot yourself right in the foot. So hat off to you for, you know, always thinking ahead, really. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and maybe there's a psycho psychological problem here that I have, it, it, you know, I, I love doing one thing really well, but it also makes me nervous because if that one thing starts to fail, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, uh oh, <laughs> mm -hmm. our future is in jeopardy. Let's fix this. But I think you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat of of kind of feeling like, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm executing really well on this one thing and having all this focus. And then I might actually be missing the next thing, but it's all, yeah. you kind of have to find the sweet spot of, of what can you execute well um, at the same time, whereas uh, you're not going off and getting distracted. I think there's a fine line, but you need to get as close to it as you can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, next one we have here, next point is test things frequently. Uh, what do you mean by that? Is just, just messaging? Is this the frequency of advertising, um, or what the creative you're getting in front of people, what does that look like? Yeah. And I want to be careful. I, you know, I wouldn't call myself the greatest tester in the world and I'm not, I don't propose, you know, <laughs> testing vomit. Like don't just go test everything indiscriminately without controls in place. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's cliche to say, you know, you know, what is it? Perfection. Uh, some, the pursuit of perfection gets in the way of good enough. And, you know, that's actually a, you know, it, it can inhibit your growth. So in content creation, I think more than more than a handful of people have brought this point up. And I certainly found this to be true. Um, you know, the fun part of marketing, at least I think the fun part of marketing is that you can try things out. <laughs> Messaging yeah. is a good place for that. You know, test your narrative, uh, test it out with the market in a sales deck, test it out in blogs and and webinars, see what kind of engagement and reaction you get. Um, you know, you want to be thoughtful, especially, you know, when you're thinking about a strategic narrative, you want to be thoughtful about um, how you piece that together and, and how you're structuring that narrative and how it applies to the different audiences that you're going to be communicating with. So it's not that you want to rush into it, but you also don't want to wait six months, a year, to put that thing together because by that time you would have done maybe five or six iterations to find what actually really works. Um, you're just now six months to a year behind the ball. And so, you know, 
creating content is a great way to test messaging. Um, changing website headlines is a great way to test what grabs people att people's attention. And that 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 in and of itself isn't the only measure of success. You know, sometimes it grabs more attention, but you're getting lower quality people to navigate your website as just an example. So you want to balance mm -hmm. that and kind of look, you kind of have to do it over time to see what's really driving the kind of engagement and the kind of results that we want. But uh, it's just this broad idea that um, you, you've got to figure out what's perfect before you roll with it. No, test it out a few times in, in different formats and in different channels with different people. Iterate quickly. Don't let that pursuit of perfection get in the way of you doing things fast, because otherwise you're just going to be late to the game on almost every instance. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that you can apply the same approach to product development. I'm not a product expert, but I would think you're probably a little bit more um, thoughtful about the way that you you develop your your product. But uh, certainly on the marketing and sales side, um, there should be a healthy amount of of trying to figure out what works. And I spoke with uh, Kyle Coleman, I think at uh, at Clary a few years ago. Actually, it was about about a year ago. Uh, he said on the SDR side, he wants to create a culture uh, where you have the freedom to fail. And I think you should apply that not just to SDRs, but to, to marketing content creators, demand gen specialists. There should be some freedom to fail, um, which opens up the possibility of testing things out thoughtfully and doing things with a purpose, but then seeing what works and being able to, to iterate quickly. And that agility, I think, is one of the hallmarks of a strong marketing team and sales team. Mm -hmm. You bring up a good point. Uh a couple of things, actually. One is your marketing really never will be perfect, no matter how long you work on it. Um, the second point, and I, I always go back to this, but it's, I bring up Chris Walker in like every episode. It's just, he's doing, he's like my uh, only example, I guess. But um, if you look at the quality of his videos now, they look great. He's using a DSLR. He's got a really nice studio, um, but he didn't start out like that. It was a Zoom call similar to what we're on right now. He had yeah. a cheap camera. He wasn't even recording in a good mic, uh, what, year and a half ago? Um, he had AirPods he was recording into. But a lot of people look at the finished product of where he's coming a year and a half, and they're like, oh, gosh, we can't do anything with a podcast or put out organic content on LinkedIn because the quality is just going to be so low. And I think that that's just a huge mistake for companies to make. And they think that they want the quality in the production uh, or their buyers are looking for this quality in production when really they're just looking for the quality in the, in the information more than anything. Oh, I totally agree. You know, we did this test not too long ago. Um, so our platform is a digital demo platform. It's just what it sounds like. You create digital demos that viewers can view on demand. We used to sell pretty heavily to marketing teams. We've since stopped that because marketers have this idea and maybe it's appropriate, you know, top of the funnel, you want things to be highly polished, high fidelity, uh, but it would take so long to produce these product demo videos from marketing that they would never adopt. And so we kind of shifted strategies. We went to pre-sellers because they could care less. They just want the quality of the information. And we were curious and we tested, okay, same content delivered in highly produced, highly polished video versus, you know, a pre-seller Zoom call, ums, butts and all, you know, captured. We got three times the engagement with those lower polished, but but highly relevant um, uh, videos just because they felt more authentic to people. And uh, to be fair, there was a lot more of, of a richness of content, which is another proof point that it's the quality, like you said, it's the quality of the content that you're sharing with them that really matters. The quality of the insights that you're providing. Um, it's almost like we have this, 
again, I'm not a psychologist, but we have this psychological response when we think see things that are highly polished. There's like this embedded bias that we uh, we attribute and project onto it because we've seen so much of that crap that <laughs> we're now as kind of desensitized to it. And it's like, no, just give me the stuff. Just give me the good stuff. If, if a guy's saying, um, but, you know, has spaces in between, has to restart, it's like, okay, I actually believe what this, this person is telling me more than I believe the other thing, because they, they're kind of like working through it to give me the stuff that I need. Um, again, I don't, I, I don't know exactly what's driving this. I, I do think there's just been this saturation of the high polish stuff. And, and really at the end of the day, it's like people want value, just give them the, give them what's valuable and helps them do their job better. If you can mm-hmm. do that, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, you want to eventually graduate to something that's higher quality, but you don't have to start there. Certainly. Yeah. I am a hundred percent aligned on that one for sure. Um, number four we have here is, is just execute quickly. I think this kind of ties into what we had talked about uh, when it comes to like quantity versus quality more than anything. And the, the value you give in what you're, you're telling your buyers or you're teaching or you're educating them on um, what does it mean to you to execute quickly? You know, we'd run these these ads with slightly, you know, pointing to the same content, but with slightly different headlines. Um, I remember doing this multiple times at my last company, and we're doing this now at my current company. You can see so quickly, you know, what's what's going to drive the behavior that we want. Um, if, if we sit around waiting for, for for things to happen, or if we take our time, again, this goes back to the point that we made about you know trying to be perfectionist. It just doesn't work. It's like the the market will move past you. Mm-hmm. You've got to be a little bit quicker, a little bit more agile, and that will allow you to deliver to the market what they need at a faster pace. And it's not necessarily about being fast all the time. You want to be relevant, but you can't get to the point of optimal relevancy unless you're starting at a point of quick iterations. Mm-hmm. So there has to be that baseline understanding that we're going to we're going to work through this, do our best thoughtfully, but then iterate quickly to get to the point where we get to something that's optimal. And you can apply this not just, I mean, it applies to almost everything. Um, that notion of iteration, doing it quickly so you can get to the point where you get to the optimal point of, of, of relevancy. Uh, you know, I, as, mar- as a product marketer, you know, I used to be responsible for our, our company's narrative. You know, I owned our strategic narrative and the first call pitch deck and the second call pitch deck. And um, I'd, I'd go through this, you know, month-long effort with sales leadership and the C leadership. It should have been a CEO top-down approach, you know, Andy Raskinism right there. But um, having said that, I'd go through this process. And at the end of it, I'd say, I'm done. I'm never going to have to do this again. Well, two months later, we'd be doing it again. Mm-hmm. And then two months later, we'd be doing it again. I realize that pitch decks are something that you're, you're just going to naturally cycle through <laughs> um, pretty frequently. But um, there's something to that. I mean, the market gives you signals. Yeah, like directly, like immediate impact. Yes, this works. No, this wor- doesn't work. This resonates. That doesn't resonate. Um, and, you know, marketers tend to think that we, we know everything. So we sit ourselves in a room, we do all this planning and we project all our knowledge onto the market because we think we know best. And then we go and talk, pe- talk to people and it's like, ah, I guess they knew, they knew best, right? Our, yeah. My best marketing content comes from the interviews I, I, I have with customers. They give me all my lines. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones that, that kind of, uh, hit, hit the nail on the head in a way that I can't, I can't do if I'm just with my team inside of a room virtually or, or otherwise. Um, so the faster you can get that kind of feedback loop in place from the market and from your customers, the more effective, the more impactful your content's going to be ultimately. 
Mm -hmm. and not just your content, your marketing strategy as a whole. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's insane yeah. what you can get. I mean, you could probably not fund, but uh, fill your entire uh, Google spreadsheet of what your marketing strategy is with the words from your customers. And it sounds like that's one of the, the first thing that you go and do. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you're totally right to apply this to not just marketing. It really applies to the entire revenue organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see this in the way that processes are laid out. You'll, you'll see, uh, you know, solution consultants or sales enablement teams build out these complex processes from start to finish in the funnel. Um, once you actually start testing that out with customers, it's, it's, it's amazing to see how, how many iterations even that goes through. So your processes have to go through a lot of iterations because you start to uncover so many black holes and mm -hmm. so many points of dropout and leakage. Um, and it's like, if you're not paying attention to it, that's one thing, but if you are paying attention to it, but unwilling to, to adjust your model, um, then you're going to continue pushing something that doesn't work on the marketplace. So again, mm -hmm. that, yeah, the principle of quick iteration and finding, finding the feedback um, as, as, as early as you can uh, really leads to more success down the road. And then uh, one last point is just actually implementing the feedback that you get. I think that's oh, I know. Uh, so <laughs> a lot of marketers, they'll get the feedback and be like, oh, that's cool. But I kind of like our way better because I'm the marketer. And then yeah. it's just in one ear and out the other. So totally. It can hurt that. sometimes. I mean, to, to, to feel really confident about something <laughs> yeah. and then to be told it sucks. You've really mm -hmm. got to eat your ego a little bit there. But again, this is a, it's part of what's fun in, in marketing is that you you have this kind of seesaw approach when it comes to strategy and, and messaging. So last point I have here uh, when it comes to the fundamentals of a demand engine is you need to align your content and demand strategy as one. So they're not siloed. Um, give us a quick rundown on, on what you think that looks like. Yeah. So my last vice president of marketing, uh, Manuel Reach, who's at Hoppin now, um, really brilliant marketer. Um, I like the way that he approached it for our team. I don't know if this applies to every team. I'm applying it, this principle to, to my current team, but um, it's a simple, it starts with something as simple as a calendar. You know, every month we kind of know who we're talking to, but let's, let's plan certain campaigns, maybe to certain audiences or pushing certain, certain events or, or messages that are, are, are important for us at that time. Um, you do that far enough in advance, you start to create the content that's going to support those campaigns. Too often, what you find is from one day to the next, you don't really have a coordinated strategy. So there's always these last minute fire drills to put together a blog or an ebook or to run a webinar with a customer on a theme because you're trying to appeal to an audience or, or to a group that you're trying to close a deal. You know, it's, it's all this last minute fire drill nonsense that I think creates unnecessary stress. There's always going to be an element of that. Uh, but the simple, the simple exercise of planning in advance, maybe a quarter out or a couple of quarters out, um, our, our different key initiatives, key campaigns month by month, um, and, and then sub campaigns and sub themes that we're going to be launching throughout gives my content team all the visibility that they need to know what to prepare for. If anything falls outside of that, then we can run it through our essentialism, uh, you know, our essentialism spectacles and determine whether or not it's, it's in scope or not. But unless we have that kind of structure in place, um, we're going to be sure to waste time and resources doing things that might not be as impactful. But if I know next month, Hey, we're talking to sales leaders about pre-sales tactics or channels, channel partner leaders about pre-sales tactics. Um, I know what kind of content I need to build to support that, especially if we plan in advance, we know the kinds of 
guests that we want to invite on our webinars and the kinds of articles that are going to be produced on the heels of that and what Forbes piece I want my CEO to run because of that initiative. Like when everything is start, it, it becomes coordinated. It just feels like there's, there's momentum behind that theme or that message. Um, I've seen it in the results. I might be overstating it. I don't think I am. I, I mean, the results kind of speak for themselves. We're having a lot of success just coordinating our demand engine with our content engine. Even our product marketing engine is just working in concert, concert to ensure that, you know, where there are exceptions, we can accommodate those, but everything is really focused in and dialed into what we, um, what we know is our strategy for the quarter. Mm-hmm. So we're going to shift gears here to uh, close out the uh, the podcast episode here. We have a few minutes left before we close out. Um, you mentioned that you've done some podcasting in the past, so you're probably going to be a natural at this, but I want to ah. hand the mic over to you, make you the host. And if you have any questions you want to shoot back to me, uh, let's knock a few out. Yeah. So, uh, you know, because of your area of expertise, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, don't compare me to your other guests. I'm, I'm a, a Padawan. And they're my Jedi, so I'm still learning, um, but I love doing this. So, uh, but you're uh, you're an expert, right? In in website building and branding, I'd like to know if there are any sacred cows that are like off limits for you when it comes to branding or or website building, website optimization. I'm going to leave that as open as possible because I'm curious to know how you respond to it. So, by sacred cows, do you mean this is what I look up to and I have to do for each? Uh you know, instance, or is this something we don't touch? It's kind of like that. Like, is, uh, are there principles or, Mm -hmm. or functional or structural things that just have to be in place always, Mm -hmm. you know, like if I'm looking at narrative building, I go to Andy Raskin and I know he's kind of got that structure of how to tell the strategic narrative. I'm wondering if there's something like that on the website side or on the branding side or, Mm -hmm. or not, you know, is, do we think too much about, I, 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 the reason why I'm asking this question, I, I feel like we do think too much about it because if you look at every SaaS website, they're all the same. Mm-hmm. So I feel mm-hmm. like we think there are sacred cows, but maybe there aren't. <laughs> this is what I would suggest. Uh, as for a sacred cow, when it comes to website development or design, I would read Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller. Um, in there, there are some things you know I don't really agree with, but I think the core principles and the core fundamentals of how to build out a landing page, a strong call to action, you're the guide and your buyer is the hero. Um, con, uh, testimonials, uh, where to put these things on a website and where to kind of lay or how to lay this out, I think would be the sacred cow that I always look back to when it comes to how do I make a website appealing and buyer centric? Because a lot of websites out there are selfish PR. They push yeah. the product and they don't ever really think about the buyer or the buyer's experience. And I think looking at it through the lens of story brand has helped me always to keep it our, at least our website and the people that we consult with to keep it simpler uh, than a lot of their competitors. Because I think the companies, they just want to explode or vomit onto a website, everything they think mm-hmm. needs to be on there. But I think if you have a checklist or a framework that you can walk through to be like, you know what? we can put this deeper into the website. Our CEO seems to think that this needs to be on there, but we can at least include it on the website, just bury it a little bit. And then maybe prove with Hotjar or your, your whatever you use to track what people are doing on the website. Maybe no one's going there anyway, and then you can show them that it doesn't need to be there. Yeah. Um, but I think if you look at it through the lens of how is a buyer coming to our website, what is going to be easiest for them? What is going to position them in the way that they feel like this is for them and they're the hero? I think that that is the the fundamental approach that you need to take to any website. I like that. 
Um, let me shift gears to brand and maybe uh, um, ask you a question a little bit differently. Are there, are there pretty consistent universal brand killers, things that just destroy a brand? You know, it takes years to build one, but in seconds you can destroy it by doing mm-hmm. what? I actually, I have like a list of all these because it's it's insane. It drives me nuts. Just the things that people do. Um, The first one would be right after this call, I have you on the podcast and I try to pitch you on our services brand killer (laughs) instantly. I I would be pissed if I was a guest and that happened to me. All right. So that people do that though. It's insane. They, they hook them with a a podcast and they're like, Oh, let me tell you about what we do. Don't do that. The second thing is you work so hard to build a brand on LinkedIn with organic and then you slide into someone's DMs and you try to get them for a quote virtual coffee or hey, let's see if there's a connection here. There's not. Stop trying to send these really cold DMs that are impersonal and you can smell them a hundred miles away. Another massive brand killer is just having a selfish mindset with your content. So again, promotional PR, um, your content is all about you, it's all about your products. And it's not that thought leadership or the educational, entertaining, helpful content that your buyers are looking for. Instant brand killer if you make that switch. And people can smell it 100 miles away. If your, yeah. if your content is 99% helpful and then 1% you put in the end of the video, it's, hey, why don't you book a demo with us and we'll help you walk through this. It's like, really, that just kind of negates everything that you just did. Just leave mm-hmm. it off. If they really wanted your service, they're going to go looking for you and they're going to remember you because of the great content. So don't ruin it with that 1% of self-promotion. Um, another, yeah, I think, I think that's pretty much my, uh, my I, list of like major pet peeves or brand killers that I see all the time. I, uh, I would agree with you. I'd add one more and I've been thinking about this a lot um, because I've experienced it on, on the unfortunate side of the equation. Um, if brand were a brand promise, like if the, the essence of your brand were the promises, you, the c- collection of promises that you're making to the market, um, one of the biggest brand killers would be breaking that promise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I see this with AI providers, you know, they make broad claims about what AI can do when you get into the weeds, <laughs> it doesn't actually fulfill that. And then suddenly you have that marked view of whatever that brand sold, sold you. And that becomes kind of a tainted thing. And I've, I've seen this honestly play out so many times throughout my career, breaking promises. That's gotta be one of the biggest things. And it kind of feeds into what you were saying. You know, you, you position one thing, but you're kind of two-faced about it. And so it creates that disconnect, that distrust with people. So I, I agree. My last question, if we've got, if we've got time for it, go for it. Um, because now I'm at a new company, we are uh, we're thinking heavily about our website. What are the metrics I should be looking at? I mean, if I want to improve performance, I hear a lot of different versions of this, and I'll tell you why it's relevant to me. Is um, well, if you pull people off the website, that's viewed univer- universally as a as a no no. But sometimes you're pulling them off into an experience that actually helps them make decisions better. So it begs the question: Is is that the right guide or are there other guides that you should be looking at as to whether or not your website is performing in the way that you need it to perform? I don't know. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. So we look at a couple of different things when it comes to website performance. Um, so we don't really do a lot of uh, conversion optimization really at all. If people ask, then we will give them the feedback because we do know marketing, right? So we'll be like, hey, this, right. this might not go here. This Maybe this will help if it's moved here. But one thing that we are really passionate about that's kind of slept on 
is the speed of a website. And I know that's not really a metric that you track, but it is something that should be important um, and in the forefront of any website, right? And the reason being is because you know you don't like going on a, a slow website. I know I don't like going on a slow website. If it takes 10 yeah. seconds to load, chances are I'm not going to be there. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't matter what metrics you're tracking, what story brand framework you're following, and all of these best practices that you're implementing on your website, if it's slow and everyone's bouncing, right? And not everybody, yeah. but that's just a very dramatic um, example. The next thing that I would say is, are people going to your website and booking a demo? And I know it's so straightforward and so basic, but I think those are the kind of things that we need to actually look at and be like, well, that's kind of the purpose of the website is to drive demand so that they go look for us and take the next step on the website. Right. Are they finding it easily? Are they getting in the demo? Are they are they coming across a hiccup and, and bouncing right before they fill out the form or they get halfway through the form and to the next step and then they're gone because the calendar link isn't working properly or they just don't like the time slots available. I think those are all things that I would look at. Um, and I think a lot of companies, they, they need to shift their mindset from tracking metrics on a website and looking at the behavior of the, the viewers or the visitors. So for example, I love to do this with Hotjar. There's a lot yeah. of different companies out there and you can get a really broad overview on the behavior your buyers or your website visitors are, how they're navigating your website, for example, where are they clicking? You can even tell where, where they are reading. What yeah. content is just something that you threw onto the page thinking it was going to be helpful that really isn't something that they want to read or that they find educational, entertaining, or whatever it is. Um, what patterns do you see? Uh, where are they clicking? You can get so many insights from just following their behaviors and it almost turns into a metric instead of, oh, how long did they spend on this page? Because that's so uh, nuanced and there's so many different um, ways that metric can just be shot through the roof because they may have just been sitting there. So that's, that's kind of how I approach it. Love it. Yeah, I'm ready to go do it. <laughs> I love awesome, it. Thank man. you. Yeah, you got it. Well, Aaron, I appreciate you joining me on the podcast here. Um, to close us out, uh, we've touched on consensus uh, a couple of times throughout the podcast, but give us like the elevator pitch, the 30 second rundown uh, in your words of what you guys do. Yeah, we uh, we scale pre-sales teams with digital demo experiences. It's pretty much as simple as that. Um, improve the buying experience. Don't, don't hold customers hostage to a calendar, uh, leverage digital demos, and you can scale your team instantly. Uh, that's, that's the biggest value prop. One of the biggest problems we solve and we're having a lot of success with it, man. Awesome. Well, I, just from that quick little, uh, sentence or, or paragraph, I know exactly what you guys do. And that just, uh, proves that your marketing is working and that you guys aren't overcomplicating it, which I think a lot of companies, actually do. So uh, yeah. good job there, man. But oh, I appreciate you. So you yeah, I appreciate you being here, Aaron. It's, it's been good to have you on the show and we'll have to do this again sometime. All right. Sounds good, man. Thank you. 